get started this morning. Welcome. Thanks for braving the sudden snowstorm on your way in. Um, what are you doing up here? Where'd you come from? All right. All right, cool. Well, welcome. <laughs> welcome to Weymouth Community Church. We're happy. No, you can't use the microphone. Um, we're happy to see you all this morning. Glad you, you made it in. We'll, we'll keep praying for anyone else who's, who's driving in or if you decided to stay home and watch the live stream. We'll, we're glad you joined us this morning. Uh, as we get started, just a couple of announcements to make you aware of here in the life of our church before we get uh, fully into our worship service. Uh, next Sunday, we have an annual meeting. Uh, that'll be a time for, for members and attenders to come and, and get an update on uh, what's happening in the life of our church and also vote on the new budget, the new uh, elder candidates. We'll hear from one of our elder candidates in a little bit here um, this morning. Um, but So we encourage you, if you are a member, please uh, plan on coming to that after the service next week. Um, if you're not a member, you're welcome to join as well and, and see what's going on. Uh, but members in particular, we're, we're inviting to come and vote and, and be a part of that congregational meeting. Uh, second announcement is uh, next week we are asking, uh, in, in honor of Sanctity of Life Sunday, we've had these baby bottles out at the Welcome Center for you to take and fill with change. Um, and we're asking if you've done that or if you would like to do that to take one of those bottles and then bring them back uh, next Sunday, a week from today. So if you have one of those bottle bottles, have you filled it up yet? Yeah, you can do that. Don't come. <laughs> There it is. Sad. All right. Is that better? Does that sound normal? All right. That's fun. Um, so bring that bottles back next Sunday. And then third announcement, um, starting the month of February, uh, we are launching a new weekly uh, youth group. We are partnering with Living Hope Church uh, to run a youth group that's going to meet uh, Wednesday nights from 630 to 8. Uh, we're going to rotate where that's hosted on a monthly basis. So starting that first Wednesday in February. We're going to be meeting at Living Hope Church um, uh, that first Wednesday at 6.30. So now as we get into our worship service, as I have this person hopping behind me, um, we're going to take a moment of just silent prayer to calm our hearts uh, before the Lord as we get into worship. So please bow and pray with me. David writes in Psalm 65, he says, by awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that you who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning in the evening to shout for joy. And gracious Father, on a day like today where we see uh, a storm uh, raging outside of, of snow coming down, Lord, remind us that you are the one who is sovereign over your creation, that you still the roaring of the seas and you still the roaring of our hearts and our lives, the tumult of the peoples. So help us to praise you, O God of our salvation, because of your worthiness to be praised, because of your power over creation. 
most of all because of all that you've worked for us in and through, in and through your Son, Jesus, our Savior. In whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please stand and sing with us.
see the cross where love and mercy meet as the son of god is stricken then see his foes lie crushed beneath his feet for the conqueror has risen and as the stone is rolled away and christ emerges from the grave this victory march continues till the day every eye and heart shall see him so spirit come Put strength in every stride, give grace for every hurdle, that we may run with faith to win the prize of a servant good and faithful. As saints of old still line the way, retelling triumphs of His grace, we hear their cause and hunger for the day when with Christ we stand in glory. Please be seated. Amen. Well, I uh, mentioned that next week we are going to be, uh, the elders and I are going to be presenting two elder candidates uh, to be voted on uh, for this next year. Uh, we have Dave Hokey and Jim Martin. And this Sunday I want to invite Dave to come up uh, and just do a brief, uh, just a brief interview to help you put a face to the name. Uh, so a lot of you know Dave already, know Marge, his wife, but I thought, here you go, sir, you can take that. Maybe just, uh, just briefly we just talk about uh, who you are, family, and then how have you become a part of this Weymouth family here over this last year? Yeah. Good morning. Nice to see so many with the, the extra yeah. weather here. Uh, let's see. I was blessed to uh, born, uh, be born in a Christian family, godly mom and dad. My grandfather was a pastor of a little church, about a little bigger than this. And when I was eight years old, uh, a evangelist came to our evening service. Uh, his name is Percy Crawford. And he preached about hell. And as an eight-year-old, I hadn't heard that much about it. And I realized I was a lost sinner and I needed Jesus as Savior. And so by God's grace, uh, that night I prayed with my dad. And uh, shortly thereafter, I was baptized by immersion by my grandfather. Um, skip forward, schooling, met Marge, and uh, I fell in love with her very quickly. She, she took another six months. And <laughs> so um, God has blessed us with 62 years and four children married, um, five married grandchildren, four younger ones who are still single, um, and seven great-grandchildren with one, Lord willing, on the way in a week. So that's a blessing. Um, so um, I had known a, n a number of, is this too loud? I'm, 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 okay. Um, I think it's bouncing back at me. Yeah. So, yeah, it does that. 
at Bueller's, we have a Bible study, and a lot of men from Weymouth over the years have been coming, so indirectly, I've known a lot about uh, Weymouth. And Adam came about a year ago and, and attended the Bible study for two or three months, and I got to know him and, and what was going on here. So we came to last year after Palm Sunday, there was a series of messages that Adam gave from uh, the upper room discourse in John. And so Marge and I came, and we were welcomed like, you know, unbelievable, the warmth and the hugs. And, and so we said, well, well, come back. So the next night, and the next night, and the next night, and then Sunday, and we've been here ever since. And so thank you for your warmth. Thank you for praying for me when I had my my stroke uh, back in August, and um, just for being a warm family. Amazing. A any other? Yeah, well, I just want to say, you know, we're really excited that you and Marge have been, you know, been connected to the Weymouth family for a long time, and this past year have come on and jumped right in with membership and worship and, and now eldership. And, um, and, and just as a note, the way eldership works here at Weymouth, in, according with our church constitution, um, we're not, Dave's not up here stumping for votes, right? This isn't a political, you know, vote for me and I'll do this for you. The, the way eldership works is we've uh, identified a couple of men as elders that we think would fit, that meet the qualifications biblically of what an elder or a shepherd of a church is. And, uh, and they're going to go through a process this week with a nominating committee, meeting with some people, just affirming uh, what we as elders, uh, are, you know, think about presenting these candidates and then as they go through that when we present them next Sunday for the vote of the membership that is presenting them for a vote of, of affirmation this isn't a vote of you know choose your favorite this is hey here's two men that we believe are qualified as elders that we have voted unanimously as elders to present to our members to join our elder team and we're asking you as members to affirm uh, that confidence that the elders already have in these guys and so the reason we have Dave share we'd like to have Jim share uh, soon as well is that we want you guys to see them, to know them, to know that they are part of this family already. And in many ways, they're already serving and, and shepherding and, and ministering in different, different ways. Um, and so we're excited that God has brought them and, and, and brought them into this position of, of potentially being called to eldership. So that's just a little note on how this works. Dave and Marge are really, really thankful for you guys. Um, and yeah, we're excited to see what God has for our church family here in 2023. So you can have a seat, and then uh, I'll invite the kids to come on up. Any kids, fifth grade and below, if you want to come up for our uh, catechism question this week. We've been going through the uh, New City Catechism, right? A series of questions and answers. Oh, okay. You want to sit next to Lena? I see how it is. Um, so... Um, so this week we are on question number 20, so we are almost halfway through the catechism, so good job. We took a little detour into the Ten Commandments for 10 weeks, so that really we should be on question 30, but you know, you got to do what you got to do. But to start off this, this morning, before we read our question, I want to show you this, guys like something I have. I have this here. Who knows what this is? A receipt. A receipt? Yes, it is a receipt. It is a receipt to Cool Beans. I got breakfast with my friend Chris Smith this week, right? So this is, uh, he's a pretty cool guy. Uh, this is what we got for breakfast. This is cool beans. Now, what is a receipt for? When do you get a receipt? When you buy stuff. Yeah, when you buy stuff, right? If you buy something, if you purchase something, you get a receipt. And what does the receipt show? What does it tell you? What How you much bought. it is. How much it is, what you bought. 
Right, it's proof that you purchased it, right? So if you go to a store and you buy some stuff and then sometimes at the store somebody has to check your bag to make sure you didn't steal anything, you pull out the receipt and you say, no, my purchase was real. I made this purchase. I bought this thing. I got lunch with my friend Chris Smith at Cool Beans. It's it real. It's really happened. I really have friends, right? Um, that's what this receipt signifies to me personally. Um, but that's what a receipt does is it certifies, it proves that a purchase happened. Now, the last couple of weeks, we've been talking in our catechism about how we are sinners, how we have broken God's law. And well, you guys are getting higher than me now. Look at that. You're getting taller right before my eyes. Um, we have broken God's law, right? We've sinned. We've broken his commands. And the way the Bible talks about that, okay, don't stand up. <laughs> the way the Bible talks about that is, is that we've created a debt. There's a debt between us and God that we owe. Just like if you were to go home and break a lamp, or if you were at your friend's house and you broke a lamp, there would be a cost to having that lamp replaced or having that lamp fixed. And either your friend has to pay that cost and their family, or you would have to pay that cost. When we sin against God, there's a debt that's created, a debt of justice, a debt of judgment that we deserve, right? But last week we talked about how um, even though we've broken God's law, even though there's this debt, there's this justice, God has made a way for us to be rescued, to be redeemed. Does anybody remember what that word redeemed means? We talked about last Sunday. To redeem something. Does anybody remember? Want to take a guess? To get. To get, yeah. Very close to redeem something is to purchase, to purchase something. A redeemer is somebody who buys something, who purchases something, who purchases uh, something like in the Bible times, you would purchase someone out of slavery. You would free them from slavery by paying money. And so we talked about how God made a way for us to be redeemed, to be purchased out of slavery to sin and rescued. And our catechism question this week, which you can see on the screen up there, is who is the one who redeems us? Who is our redeemer? And the answer is the only redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. So the message of the Bible, the good news of the gospel, you guys, is that Jesus Christ, God's son, came and went to the cross and died, and he died to purchase us. He died to pay the price for our sins. Right, guys? Mm -hmm. He died, he died to, to pay the price to free us, to redeem us. And when Jesus died, he didn't just die, but he rose again in his resurrection. It's like the receipt. It's like the proof of purchase. It's the, it's the certainty that this payment has been made, that Christ has redeemed us, that he's paid the price to God. He's paid the price of judgment for us in our place that we deserve. So when you think about what it means to be a Christian, it means that you are somebody who's trusted in Jesus as your redeemer, as the one who's paid the price for your sins to purchase you for God, to bring you back into a relationship with God. So think about that the next time you buy something, the next time your mom or dad gets a receipt, that Jesus is our Redeemer, that he's purchased us and saved us and rescued us. Make sense? Any questions? All right, good. All right, let me pray for us. Well, gracious Father, we thank you that even though we've incurred a debt before you, even though we've uh, sinned and broken your law, even though we deserve your judgment, we deserve to pay the price for our sins. We thank you that you sent your son to purchase us, to redeem us, to pay the price that we deserve with his own life to rise again as proof, as validation, uh, that forgiveness, that restoration, that life is available in him. So we thank you for your grace in Jesus. Help us to trust him, to follow him, to uh, honor you and obey you in response to how you've purchased us and given us a whole new life in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Whoa, you're on the ground. All right, we're going to go to Children's Church now with Mrs. Martin. So follow along behind her.
And then the rest of us will stand and sing together. chapter 4 this morning. We'll, we'll finish this chapter here in verses 35 through 41. It's a fitting passage for us this morning as we see the, the snow fall outside, see a winter storm around us to read of Jesus calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee. So follow along as I read Mark 4, starting in verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. 
And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Amen. This is the word of God. Please pray with me. Gracious Father, as we come to your word this morning, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For the sake of your Son, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, uh, I started off by uh, showing one of my favorite uh, paintings by Rembrandt, uh, The Return of the Prodigal Son. And, and to start off this morning, I want to show you another one of my fam- favorite Rembrandt paintings up here on the screen. Uh, this is called uh, The Storm on the Sea of Galilee. Apparently it's Rembrandt month to start off the year here at Weymouth, but uh, this is the storm on the Sea of Galilee. This is uh, by Rembrandt. It's actually a painting that was stolen uh, from a museum in Boston in in 1990. So you can't actually see this in person anywhere, but uh, this is one of his most famous paintings and it depicts this scene on the Sea of Galilee as the storm comes in and overtakes the boat. And you can see in the painting how Rembrandt, he depicted the the strength and the power of the waves, the, the danger that the disciples were experiencing as they were on the boat with Christ as the storm began, as the water flooded over onto the deck. Uh, But what really strikes me about this painting, what's really interesting about this painting is that the artist, Rembrandt, he actually painted himself into the painting. This is something he would do from time to time, and it's really interesting how he did this in this painting. We can zoom in, we have another slide zoomed in right there. There in the center of the painting is, is Rembrandt himself. He's there, he's holding on the rope, he's holding on to his hat in the middle of the storm, trying to keep from uh, falling overboard. He's actually right next to a guy who's puking over the side of the deck, which is a fun little detail that Rembrandt put in, right? But it's, what's interesting about this is Rembrandt, he painted himself into the painting, and if you look, he's the only figure in the painting that's looking directly out at the viewer. Every other figure is looking at the water, looking at the boat, looking at Jesus, looking at something else, but Rembrandt, he's looking right at the viewer. So you could look at him right in the eye if you were to see this in person, you look at this painting. And he does that very intentionally. This was an intentional choice on the part of the artist. In his book, Rembrandt is in the Wind, in the wind Pastor Russ Ramsey, he writes this, by painting himself into the boat, Rembrandt wants us to know that he believes his life will either be lost in a sea of chaos or preserved by the Son of God. Those are his only two options. And by peering through the storm and out of the frame to us, he asks if we are not in the same boat. You see, by painting himself into this painting, by looking directly at the audience, Rembrandt, what he's doing is he's inviting us to see ourselves in this painting, to see ourselves on the boat with the disciples, to realize that this storm that the disciples are facing is the same storm that all of us face every day. That like the disciples, all of us are living in the midst of a sea of chaos and death swirling around us. That death is our inescapable reality, our oppressive destiny, our fearful fate. But even in the midst of this storm, even in the midst of this boat that is being rocked by the waves, there is a Savior present. There is one who has ultimate authority, who can rescue us even from the waves of death. And so the question for us this morning is, will we perish in the sea of chaos, 
Or will we be preserved by the Son of God? And that's the quesant, the, the, quesant, the question presented to us in this text. The big idea, the main thought, the main question we want to come away from this passage is this, is do you have faith in the Son of God who has authority even over death? As you face the storms and waves of death that swirl around you, do you have faith in the Son of God who has authority even over death itself? This overarching question is developed for us in the text through, uh, to, through three uh, questions, three uh, examples of dialogue that we see in the passage. When you read a narrative in Scripture, you want to look at, okay, who are the characters? Uh, what's the movement of the plot? What's the use of time? But another thing that helps us is looking at, okay, what dialogue is happening in this narrative? Who's saying what? How are they responding to it? Who says the next thing? And in this narrative here of Jesus on the Sea of Galilee in the midst of this storm, we have three questions that are asked, three questions that are posed, and these questions form the structure of the story. I was helped in seeing this by the commentator Peter G. Bolton. He calls these three questions first the existential question, then the faith question, and finally the Christological questions. But to simplify it a bit for our purposes this morning, I'm going to call them the a question about care, a question about confidence, and a question about Christ. These three questions form the structure of our text this morning and help us answer this question of, do you have faith in the Son of God who has authority even over death? So let's look at each of these three questions, uh, starting first with a question about care, verses 35 through 38. Because what's going on in this scene is that after a full day of, of teaching and ministering, Jesus and his disciples, they are in a boat Jesus has been in a boat all day. Mark 4, at the beginning of the chapter 4, he tells us that he was teaching and the crowds were so great that Jesus got into a boat and went out onto the water so he could better teach the crowds, he could escape the mob. So Jesus has been teaching in this boat and at the end of this day of ministry, he tells his disciples, let's go to the other side. Let's go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to get away from the crowds, to rest. And so the disciples, they take off on the boat, and it seems like there were some other boats that were there as well. We don't know whose boats they were, if they were connected to Jesus or not. But Jesus and his disciples get in a boat, they go across the Sea of Galilee, and as they're going, uh, the wind picks up, and a storm begins, a storm brews. Now the basin, the place, the geographical basin in which the Sea of Galilee is situated, surrounded by mountains and hills, it it made it really likely for sudden storms to happen in the Sea of Galilee. This was a a common occurrence. And so often fishing was done at night because the seas were typically calmer at night than they were during the day. But in this situation, at the end of the day, even then a storm uh, is whipped up by the wind that comes through the basin in which the Sea of Galilee resides. And the fact that the storm was happening at night tells us this was a bad storm. This was a significant, powerful wind causing uh, life-threatening waves and waters. The storm was bad news. It was so bad that Jesus' disciples, many of whom were, several of whom were experienced fishermen and sailors who would have seen storms, who would have seen things like this on the Sea of Galilee before. These professional sailors, they are so uh, freaked out by this storm they begin to give in to despair. They begin to give in to panic because the waves are so high. They're already overflowing onto the deck, trying to sink the boat. These professional fishermen, they're out of options. 
They're freaking out. And so they look for Jesus and they find him sleeping in the stern. They find him sleeping and they wake him up and they ask him a striking question. They say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care that we are perishing? It's interesting how uh, the disciples, they don't merely just wake Jesus up and tell him the situation. They don't just say, hey, Jesus, good morning. Guess what? We're all going to die. Right? They don't wake up and ask Jesus to, to save them. It's interesting. You read the other accounts in Matthew and Luke. In one, uh, it's more straightforward. They say, hey, Jesus, we're perishing. The boat's sinking. In another one, they wake Jesus up and they say, hey, Jesus, save us. We're perishing. But it's interesting how in Mark, based on the, the eyewitness accounts of the disciples, Mark records this as a question about care. He records this as a question where the disciples ask Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? And I wonder if any of us have ever asked a similar question to God. Because like Rembrandt depicts in his painting, as human beings, we are all in the boat with the disciples. We are all uh, living amongst the chaotic waves of mortality and death. We are frail creatures living in a frail world. Our, our tomorrow is not guaranteed. We are all perishing. To be human means that one day all of us is going to die. We are all perishing, whether it's through age or sickness or tragedy. One day our lives will waste away and we will die. Death is an unavoidable certainty for every one of us. And the suffering that accompanies death, the chaos, the hardship that swell around it, it marks each one of us in some way. And so as Christians, as believers, we need uh, to have an answer for the reality of death, the reality of our mortality. We need to know how to handle it when this question rises up in our own hearts, when our suffering and our circumstances lead us to turn to God and ask him the question, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care that our lives are wasting away, that our world is wasting away? Do you not care, God, that we are perishing? Because we may not literally be in a boat or in a storm, but death is all around us. Suffering is all around us. We are reminded every day of our frailty. And so does God care? Does he care that we are perishing in the face of the waters of death all around us? Because this theme of, of water as a deadly and destructive force, this theme is all throughout the Bible. Think about uh, God flooding the earth in the book of Genesis. Or God causing the Red Sea to crash down in on Pharaoh and his armies in the book of Exodus. Or think about uh, baptism, the symbol of baptism in which believers go down into the water of death, go down into the grave as a symbol of our union with Christ in his death and then are brought back up out of the water to new life. When we see water in Scripture, water is often depicted as a powerful force, as a deadly force of God's judgment, of destruction. And so all of us uh, deal with this. All of us face this every day, and sometimes it can feel like we're drowning, like we're lost, we're alone. And we ask God, do you not care that we are perishing? What are you doing, God? And so we see in this account, in the story of the disciples, something that we can all relate to, something that we all experience. From a biblical perspective, the waves on the Sea of Galilee, they, they don't just paint a picture of the disciples perishing, of their suffering, but reminds us of all of our own uh, mortality, of our own experiences with suffering 
and death. And so it's hard to avoid this question of care. When the dreaded phone call comes, when the news from the doctor's not good, and we see our bodies are our world wasting away, in the face of all of that and the fear and pain that comes along with that, it can be natural to ask God, God, do you really care about me? Do you really care that we are perishing? Why is this happening? And this question for Mark's early readers, this would have been an essential question. Because the early readers of Mark, many of them were dealing every day with the threat of deadly persecution. They were being arrested and killed. They were literally perishing for their faith in Christ. So they might have asked this question, Lord, do you not care that we are perishing? This is the question they asked. This is the question the disciples asked. This is the question we sometimes are led to ask. And Jesus responds to this question of care with a question of his own. He responds to this question of care with a question about confidence. A question about confidence. Now, several years ago, we went uh, to the Outer Banks uh, with our family, with my wife's parents. Uh, they go every year. We go with them sometimes. So we go to the Outer Banks. And of course, when you're out in the Outer Banks, you have these beautiful beaches, this beautiful ocean. So we spent some time swimming in the ocean. Now, I'll be honest, swimming in the ocean is not one of my favorite things to do a lot of the time. And that is mainly because I have an irrational fear of sharks. I don't know. It's just, it's just part of my life. I saw Jaws when I was way too young. You know, and so ever since then, anytime time I'm in the ocean, I'm like, they're out there. They're going to get me. I'm going to hear the music and it's going to be over. Right? So I, didn't, I don't love to do it, but I was, you know, I was doing it because I was trying to you know, face my fear and grow as a person and spend time with my family in the ocean, right? But what struck me, what struck me as we were you know, on that trip, as we were swimming in the ocean, I was struck not by you know, sharks surrounding me because that didn't happen, obviously, but what really struck me was the strength and the power of the waves in the ocean. You know, it's not something we really see here in Northeast Ohio with Lake Erie, right? We don't... We don't see these huge, strong waves because it's a lake. It's kind of a gross, polluted, weird lake. Um, no offense to Lake Erie. I lived by Lake Erie for 10 years, so I can, I can talk about it. Um, <laughs> but uh, if you go to the ocean, you go to the Outer Banks, you really see like the, the Atlantic or the Pacific Ocean. Even just normal-sized, average, everyday waves, if you're swimming in the midst of them, if you don't swim through them in the right way, even just normal, average waves can just knock you on your back if you're not careful. That's how powerful the ocean can be just on a normal good day. But the disciples, they weren't facing a normal good day. They weren't facing normal average size waves. They were facing huge boat sinking waves. Waves that were pummeling their boat, that were uh, just rocking and unleashing on the sides onto the deck, over the sides onto the deck. They were uh, panicking and despairing because their boat was sinking, because their lives were at stake, because they were perishing. That's what they were facing, and in facing this kind of opponent, this kind of sea, in their fear, in their panic, in their despair, they go to Jesus and they wake him, and Jesus does something unbelievable. Jesus wakes up, he looks out on these huge, life-threatening, deadly waves, and Mark tells us that he rebuked the wind and the waves as if he was talking to a, a toddler having a temper tantrum. He says to the sea, he says, peace, be still. And the wind ceases. The sea calms down. I don't know if you can picture that, if you can imagine just the sheer incongruity of those two moments. One moment you have 
these giant storm clouds and waves and wind just rocking your boat, ending your life. And then the next moment, it's just peace, calm, stillness. That's what happens in this scene. That's what Jesus accomplishes. He rebukes the wind. He tells the sea to be calm and it obeys him. And then Jesus, he follows this amazing act, this miracle. He follows it with an absolute mic drop of a question. He turns to his disciples and he says, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? It's a striking question because the disciples, they had asked Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? And in response, Jesus asks them, why are you so afraid? Why were you so afraid of perishing in the first place? What's going on in your hearts? Because uh, the disciples, they've seen Jesus do amazing things already. They've seen him heal people and cast out demons. They've seen him do and say things only God can do and say. And Jesus himself was the one who said, hey, let's get in the boat and let's go to the other side. Jesus was the one who had given them the confident command, the promise that they were going to go. And yet when the storm rages in in their frail humanity, the disciples' confidence in Christ, it quailed in the face of the storm, in the face of these deadly waves. Their fear of perishing overtook their faith in the power of Jesus. And so we see that the disciples, they haven't arrived yet. They're still progressing in their faith, in their confidence in Christ. It's still growing. They don't yet have a faith in Christ that can conquer even the fear of death. And so this theme, this question of faith, it's going to become a a key focus in this next section in the book of Mark as we go through it. As we continue on in the next couple weeks, we're going to see uh, this question of faith come up again and again. Because the disciples here, they're set up as men whose faith is still being developed, whose confidence in Christ is still growing. But then as we continue in the book, we're going to be met with some other uh, people in the story. Some other people who are facing up to the reality of death. As we continue, we're going to see a demon-possessed man who's living literally among the tombs. We're going to see a, a, a woman who's been living with a discharge of blood for 12 years, whose body is slowly perishing, who's experiencing a type of ritual and social death because of her uncleanness. And we're going to see a little sick girl and her father whose desperation will not be enough to keep her from dying. And as Jesus comes to each of these people, he's going to do something amazing. He's going to display again and again his authority, even over death. But he's also going to reveal to us the centrality of faith as the answer to fear. Of faith as the answer to fear, even the fear of death. And not to jump ahead in the story, but we're going to see this idea climax in the story of Jairus. Jairus, who is a a ruler of the synagogue whose daughter is sick. And in his, de- in his des- desperation, Jairus, he's going to come to Jesus and ask Jesus to heal his daughter. But on their way to her, they're going to be stopped by a messenger who's come to tell Jairus that his daughter is dead. So how does Jesus respond to this? In Mark chapter 5, how does he respond not just to the threat of death or the fear of death, but to the reality of death, to the real tragedy of a life cut short? How does Jesus respond in in Mark 5? He says to Jairus, he says, Do not fear, only believe. 
Do not fear, only believe. He says this to Jairus, and then he goes to the girl's house, and he wakes her up. He brings her back to life. He displays ultimate power over death itself. So we see that Jesus, he has the power to command deadly waves to go to sleep, and the power to call dead people to wake up. That's the authority, that's the power he has. And so in the face of death itself, he tells a grieving father, do not fear, only believe. And in the face of a deadly storm, his response to the disciples' panic is, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And this question is not just for the disciples, but it's for all of us. When faced with the fear or the reality of death, the reality that we live in a fallen world corrupted by sin, that we are all perishing because of our sin in the face of this reality. Do we have faith? Or are we caught up and consumed with fear? Do we have confidence and trust in the one who has ultimate authority, even over death itself, who can miraculously bring life even out of death? Because we know that Jesus has this ultimate authority from the Bible. We know this not just because he calmed the storm, not just because he raised Jairus' daughter, but because when Jesus himself was faced with death, when he himself died and was buried, he didn't stay that way. On the third day, he rose again. As he says in the book of John, he has the authority to lay his life down and the authority to take it up again. He has absolute authority over death, to bring new life. He did this in himself, and so all who trust in him can be delivered from death into eternal life. And so when we're faced with the waves of death, with the storm that threatens to to ruin our lives, the suffering that comes along with perishing, with pain, with sickness, with wasting away, when faced with all of this true security and true peace, can only be found through faith in the one who spoke peace to the storm itself, who died and rose again to bring us a greater peace and a greater life than we ever could have imagined. You see, our fear, our fear of death, our fear of suffering, it's not something that can just be rationalized or worked away. It's not something that we can get rid of by checking off items on a list or reading enough books or working hard enough and doing enough things. Our fear can only be replaced. It can only be expelled or conquered or cast out by something greater. And we see this at the end of this scene on the, on the Sea of Galilee. Because after Jesus calms the storm, the disciples haven't lost their fear. Their fear has just been redirected. It's been replaced. Their fear of perishing becomes replaced by a fear of a person, of a person, and it leads them to ask a question about Christ. So we have a a question of care, a question of confidence, and finally, a question about Christ. Because after seeing Jesus calm this storm, Mark tells us that the disciples, they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You know, I love reading the Gospels because the disciples, they're just so human and so relatable. They make me laugh sometimes, right? Because you have in one verse Jesus telling the disciples, why are you so afraid? And then in literally the next verse, Mark tells us, and the disciples were filled with fear, 
right? They're filled up with fear again. That's so human. That's so relatable. These guys are still in progress. They're still learning. They were one moment afraid of this deadly storm, and then all of a sudden now they're filled with fear over this person who miraculously calmed the storm. That's, that's relatable. That's understandable. That's human. But it's also important to see uh, the significance of this new fear in the disciples. This fear even of Christ done was awe-inspiring. It was fear-inducing. It was literally awesome. It produced an awe, a fear, a wonder in the disciples as they looked at Jesus and asked the obvious question, who is this guy? Who is this who even the wind and the waves obey him? And the language here in these verses of, of the wind, of the sea, obeying Jesus Obeying his command, obeying his call, Jesus rebuking and controlling uh, creation. This language reminds us the word, of the words of Psalm 65, which we read at the start of this service. Psalm 65 is a psalm of David, a psalm of praise where he declares, By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might. Now listen to this part. Who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. So that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. These are the words of Psalm 65. And I wonder if any of the disciples had those words ringing in their ears after they saw Jesus calm the storm. Because this wasn't just a random, unexpected occurrence in the life and ministry of Jesus. What Jesus is doing when he's calling the storm is he, is he is fulfilling a picture from the Old Testament of what only God can do. Because God is the one who calms the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves. He alone has the authority to calm and control his creation. And we see this throughout the Bible. We see this in the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis where the earth is formless and void and the Spirit of God, he's doing what? He's hovering over the face of the waters, giving shape and, and purpose to the chaos of the world. God himself is the one who separates the waters with land. He's the one who uh, had the power to call the rains to flood the earth in Noah's day to separate the Red Sea so that his people could uh, be delivered from slavery. God is the one who brought water from the rock in the wilderness, who split the Jordan River so his people could enter the promised land. God alone has the authority to control, to rebuke, to rule over his creation. And so by calming the storm, Jesus is displaying an authority, a power that only God himself possesses. That only God himself, the creator of the world, has the authority to do. And the disciples see this, but they don't see it. They, they see what happens, but they don't fully understand what it means about Jesus. And so they ask, who is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? And this question of Jesus' identity is the key question in the book of Mark. This is the key, key question we're meant to ask as we read Mark's gospel. Who is this? Who is this Jesus? Who is this man that can do these miraculous things? 
This is the question we're meant to ask. It's the question on which the entire book of Mark is hinged. It turns in Mark chapter 8 where Jesus himself asked the question. Where he turns to his disciples and he asks them, Who do you say that I am? And so the key question that should confront us as we read the book of Mark is this. Who is Jesus? Who is this man who can heal disease and cast out demons? Who can calm the storm? Who can silence death itself? And if you've been paying attention to the book of Mark, then you know that Mark answered this question right in the beginning of his gospel. And he's going to answer it again at the very end of his gospel. Mark told us the answer in the very first verse of chapter 1. He declared his gospel as the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He tells us right away that this book is the announcement about Jesus Christ. That he is the Son of God who has come to rescue God's people. And again and again throughout this gospel we see these examples. uh, We see these accounts of the divine power and authority of Jesus But it's only at the end of the gospel, in chapter 15, where a human being actually makes a clear confession that Jesus is the Son of God. And this confession happens not in a moment of great power, but in a moment of great weakness. It happens during the crucifixion of Jesus. As Jesus hangs on the cross in Mark 15, Mark tells us that during the sixth hour, uh, that darkness covered the whole land for three hours. Darkness like a storm, darkness uh, that represented the the judgment and death that comes as a consequence of sin. As Jesus hangs on the cross in this darkness, he cries out. He cries out just as the disciples cried out in the midst of the storm. So Jesus cries out in the midst of his storm on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because on the cross, what was happening is Jesus was enduring the storm of God's wrath. He was enduring the waves of death and judgment that you and I deserve in our place. On the cross, Jesus displayed ultimate care for the perishing because he perished in our place. He perished in our place. He died the death that we deserve with a loud cry. He breathed his last. He wasn't rescued from the storm like the disciples were. He endured the full uh, violence of the storm upon himself, the full death that the storm of God's wrath for our sin deserves. And he did that for us. And when when a centurion, a, a Roman soldier who was on guard, a guy who would have seen hundreds or if not thousands of crucifixions, When he's standing by and he sees Jesus die in this way, this Roman centurion, he declares, truly, this man was the Son of God. And so the answer in Mark's gospel then to this question of who is this man, that even the winds and the seas obey him, the answer that Mark gives us that he points us to in the beginning and the end and throughout the book is that this man is the Son of God. He is God himself he is the god of our salvation the god who has the power to still the roaring of the seas the roaring of the waves the tumult of the people he is the son of god who spoke peace to the waves who bore the floods of god's judgment in our place so that we could have eternal peace and security and life in him who bore our storm so that we could be rescued from it, 
who bore our death so we could be given eternal life in Him. And the question is, do you trust Him? Do you have faith in Him? Is your fear answered by your faith in Christ? Do you have faith in the Son of God who has authority even over death? Because remember the invitation of our friend Rembrandt. Remember him looking directly at us, uh, holding his hat in a storm, inviting us to see that we too are on the boat with the disciples. That we too are facing a storm of death and judgment because of our sin. We too are perishing. We are not alone in this boat. The Son of God himself took on flesh and entered into our storm to take the flood that we deserve. He may not physically remove you from your circumstances or the, or the storm you're facing on this side of eternity. He may not calm your physical storm or your circumstantial storm with the same immediacy as that of the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. But Jesus brings us ultimate peace to our ultimate storm. He rescues us from the ultimate death we deserve for our sins. He brings us an eternal life and security that the waves of death can never touch. So will you trust him? Will you let your fear be replaced with faith? Because we only have two options. Either, either our lives, both now and in eternity, will be lost in a sea of chaos, or we will be preserved by the Son of God, who has authority even over death itself. So why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Let's pray. Gracious Father, as we think about the storms raging all around us, the reality of death and perishing in our own lives, of our own frailty, Lord, as we have moments of doubt, of wonder whether or not you care, Lord, remind us again, help us to be confident in Christ who has authority to bring life out of death, who has authority to calm the tumult in our hearts and in our lives that are the result of sin. And so, Lord, help us to rest on Christ, to lean on him, to rest in him as our sure confidence, our sure Savior, who brings us peace, who brings us life, not because we deserve it, but because you are gracious, God, to rescue us out of the storm and to bring us onto solid land. So help us to walk on this land, to, to go out and reach out and fish for others who are lost in the storm, lost in the waters, to point them to the hope and the salvation that is ours in Christ, our Redeemer, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we'll finish this morning uh, with one final song together. So please stand and sing with us. i
safe, take it slow, um, but let's go with a word of benediction. Please bow your heads with me. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.